Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to the Rare Petro Podcast. It is myself, Tavis Killian, joined today with Kevin. How's it going, guys? And we've got another great, exciting episode of The Basin Breakdown, covering a lot of the events through the month of June. Of course, it is July. If you're new to the show, we do a quick look back, go over the biggest news for some eight major basins. And today, we will start, as we always do, with the DJ Nanobrera and Peons Basins. First story, Boulder County squaring up against Crestone Peak. The Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that Crestone Peak retained mineral rights on two of its leases despite not having produced for four months. Boulder County is displeased with this decision and will be attempting to take the case to the Colorado Supreme Court in hopes of a reversal. Senior Assistant County Attorney Kate Burke said that it is a critical issue for the whole state as, quote, oil and gas leases stay valid as long as production continues, but what does the word production mean? The Court of Appeals said production includes shut-in wells that yield no oil or gas, meaning operators can hold leases open without actually producing anything, end quote. Still, the court's decision maintained that production is defined as the capability to produce oil or gas in commercial quantities. If the higher ruling is in favor of Crestone Peak, it will establish a strong legal precedence nationally. If not, then many companies will likely lose large portions of their portfolios if challenged in the future. And to me, this really just comes down to being literate in the industry. Uh, there's situations in which you're not going to be producing fluid. No, absolutely. I mean, think of back when the price of oil went negative. Okay, that's a perfect time right there to just shut in your wells for a day, a week, a month. Hey, if your returns on those barrels of oil aren't going to make you any money, shut them in until they do. So in terms of this, I think in reality, it's just Boulder doing anything they can yeah. <laughs> to kick out production from their county. But it will be interesting to see because kind of like you said, this is going to set a precedent on a national scale for how to determine how are we going to hold our lease? Does it need to be a month, two months, any kind of production, volumes of production? So we'll keep you updated on this as the story develops. But moving on, we're going to talk about some greenhouse gas proposals. In early June, Governor Polis and Democratic state lawmakers reached an agreement on efforts to track and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in our state. House Bill 1266 is a revision of Senate Bill 200, the new bill allows the Air Quality Control Commission to enforce emissions reductions in oil and gas, electric utility, and industrial-slash-manufacturing sectors. This means the commission will be holding oil and gas in Colorado to the goal of 60% reductions in emissions by 2030. It will also create an environmental justice ombudsman position to field complaints related to pollution impacts on vulnerable communities. While it has passed the Senate Finance Committee 4-3, to it still needs to be approved by the Senate Appropriations Committee. I just see this as another regulatory body. I mean, I think the COGCC is doing its best to ensure that the industry is reaching these goals. So, uh, honestly, this seems like a redundant agency to me. I kind of agree with you. I mean, granted, they are focusing on air quality, but I do believe that that is a subset that the COGCC already regulates. So, Maybe it's just kind of like one of those things where they're trying to appease the people um, and then just kind of being more upfront in the news with it. But who knows? We'll see where this story takes us. Next, we've got the ever popular newly formed Civitas, and they are planning to acquire, get this, another company. The original merger was a result of the efforts between Bonanza Creek Energy and Extraction ONG, but... A recent announcement shows that they will also purchase Crestone Peak Resources. Unfortunately, the news arrived shortly after a Crestone well fire in Arapahoe County that burned several trucks and some equipment, but fortunately no one was harmed. The resulting company anticipates it will be the state's first carbon-neutral oil and gas producer, scope 1 and 2, not 3, 
upon closing. Because Crestone's primary investor is the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, Crestone will be adding one investor to Savitas's board. So I think this is interesting. It's unfortunate that um, there was that Crestone peak fire just after they closed this acquisition. But because they're already this massive DJ Basin, basically Titan in the area, I don't really think it's going to affect them too much. Um, but it is going to be interesting to see if Savitas is just going to focus here in the DJ or if they're going to take you know, all this new acreage and all this new portfolio and then try and expand to, who knows, maybe down in the Permian, maybe up into the Marcellus, do some gas stuff. Yeah, at this point, I know I'm not certain. Maybe one of you out there knows, but I'm sure it's under legal wraps. So again, we'll keep you posted as more of this news comes out. So now that we've wrapped up the stories here in Colorado, we're going to send it up north to our neighbors up north in the Powder River Basin. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon has announced up to $12 million of the remaining $67 million of the coronavirus relief aid money will be allocated towards oil and gas projects through the Energy Rebound Program. The Energy Rebound Program, which was launched back in November, was created to boost the state's oil and gas industry as it recovers from an economic decline by using federal aid as an incentive to push efforts to create jobs and stimulate the economy in Wyoming instead of other states. Quote, this is about trying to maintain jobs in Wyoming, said Ryan McConaughey, a spokesman for the Petroleum Association of Wyoming, stressing that projects will still require big investments due to a $500,000 cap on each project. I mean, this isn't anything new. Through last year, we saw a lot of it, especially in North Dakota, Wyoming, these areas. Lots of resources going to oil and gas to try and support the people who were displaced by those oil prices tanking. So I like to see it. That's it. <laughs> We've talked about this several times before. It's probably been brought up in at least three other Basin Breakdowns, mm -hmm. but I love the fact that they're using kind of, I, I mean, it's not free money, but this money <laughs> that the government is providing to try and get people back to work. I mean, look at how much of Wyoming's economy is based off of oil and gas. I think it's so key and so important that the states recognize that and the state's leaders have said, let's use this money to get our people back to work. Let's stimulate our economy and let's keep all that money in the state of Wyoming. Next, the sage-grouse strikes again. So a judge has put an end to plans for oil and gas drilling across large swaths of Wyoming and Montana, citing concerns about a sagebrush nesting bird. According to Idaho U.S. District Judge Ronald E. Bush, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management did not fully analyze how drilling might damage the greater sage-grouse, nor did it evaluate the possibility of deferring drilling in the bird's prime habitat. Drilling would have taken place on more than 600 square miles of federal land strewn across energy-rich states. The United States Fish and Wildlife Service decided in 2010 that the bird warranted special protection, but claimed Wyoming conservation efforts made this unnecessary in 2015. Again, this is another story that we see quite frequently about this time every year as the sage grouse tries to start its breeding season. I mean, Tavis, I don't know the last time that you drove in a highway in Wyoming, but they're all over the place. They're scampering <laughs> across the highway. The thing is, I'll bet you more sage-grouse are killed by vehicles every day just driving up and down highways than could possibly be damaged by drilling activities in the state. So, again, I agree with that report back in 2015 that says, all right, further conservation isn't really necessary. But, um, again, you know, we are environmental stewards here, so let's protect the birds, but let's be a little more reasonable about it. <laughs> yeah. Up next, the Biden administration's freeze on oil and gas leasing was found to be an overreach of executive power by the U.S. District Judge Terry Dowdy of Louisiana, who ruled that it is, quote, 
hereby enjoined and restrained from implementing the pause of new oil and natural gas leases on public lands, end quote, which the administration instituted on January 27th in an effort to address climate change. The Bureau of Land Management is in charge of oil and gas lease sales on federal lands. The BLM must begin quarterly resales under the verdict, but is not required to set quarterly lease sales. Still, the ruling may not fully remediate this situation. As staff attorney of the Powder River Basin Resource Council, Shannon Anderson puts it, quote, there is no legal obligation for the Department of the Interior to sell oil and gas resources to the industry. There's no law that makes them do that, end quote. I mean, so this is what now? Wyoming, like we said, Louisiana, Texas, several states going, we're not going to stand for this, but I, I still don't see any progress between any of these agencies. Absolutely. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's stuck in deadlock. It's actually 12 states that have come together that have said, this is ridiculous. You know, you're limiting our income. I mean, again, we talked about the economy in Wyoming depending on oil and gas. There's other states just like this that depend on these lease sales to bring in income to support their economy. So again, it's kind of in deadlock, so we'll see where this goes down the road. But that's all we've got for Wyoming, and we're going to move it down to Texas, where we go to one of our favorite basins, the Permian, and we've got lots of M&A news. First one, Northern Oil and Gas Incorporated announced last month that it has signed three definitive agreements for the purchase of non-operated interests totaling approximately 2,900 net acres in Reeves County, Texas, and Lee and Eddy Counties, New Mexico, for a total purchase price of $102 million. Cha-ching! May 2021 production on the assets was approximately 2,200 barrels of oil equivalent per day, and Northern expects their efforts to boost average production to 3,700 barrels of oil equivalent per day in the second half of 2021. Northern estimates approximately $35 million of capital expenditures on the combined properties to be incurred in 2021. What is that, 50%, more than a 50% increase on production? That sounds pretty significant. Think they'll pull it off? I don't see why not. <laughs> and we've got more money flying around. Occidental Petroleum said in early June that it's going to sell some of its Permian Basin assets to a subsidiary of private equity-backed Colgate Energy Partners for $508 million. After the pandemic slashed fuel consumption, the oil producer cut jobs, production, and asset value, putting more strain on a firm that had taken on huge debt to buy Anadarko Petroleum for $38 billion back in 2019. According to a regulatory filing, the company's long-term net debt was $35.47 billion as of March 31st, and it aims to sell between $2 to $3 billion in properties this year to pay down the debt. The transaction with Colgate Energy spans about 25,000 net acres in Texas's southern Delaware Basin, with around 360 active wells producing about 10,000 barrels of oil equivalent each and every day. I mean, I almost feel bad for Occidental, but they did get involved in that bidding war, and now they're left with that mountain of debt. Sure, oil's worth more at this point, but with everyone hedged at what they're hedged at, they're not seeing those benefits yet, so they're going to have to sell a lot of property to make those banks and investors happy. But these guys have a pretty good head on their shoulders, so I bet they know what they're doing. And then to close it all out, Callan Petroleum Operating Company is selling Midland Basin properties in order to generate cash. This includes Tier 1 assets over 1,150 acres with excellent production as per the 18 horizontal wells already on site. The projected 12-month PDP cash flow is $11 million. 32 qualified horizontal locations are already in place targeting the Sprayberry and Wolf Camp formations. And I'm just now realizing that this reads as a sales pitch. I promise it's not. I wasn't paid to do any of this. This is just some news. So, hey, 
you're a pretty big company looking to acquire some stuff, that's where you can look. But we're going to move on over to the Eagleford in Texas. For years, Texas lawmakers and oil and gas industry allies have campaigned the idea that produced water might help fulfill the state's overall water needs. The Texas legislature recently enacted Senate Bill 601, establishing a Texas Produced Water Consortium in recognition of the need to better understand treatment demands, economic challenges, and public health and environmental dangers associated with the industry's wastewater. Texas is the second state to form a consortium following the creation of a produced water research consortium in New Mexico two years ago. State officials in New Mexico have made a commendable effort to get the science correct before exploring reuse or discharge options outside of the oil field. The state is just about to begin preliminary pilot testing to evaluate technology and water quality outcomes, but will not release any treated waters into the environment at this time, limiting the potential of negative consequences from this research. I love this. Uh, to see both Texas and New Mexico jumping the gun on it, I mean, the gun being a water crisis, this is a great way to get ahead of that and hopefully address our needs before we run into that problem. Absolutely. Tavis and I have talked about this in a couple of uh, both periodical podcasts and even basin breakdowns in the past. Look at the drought that is quite literally strangling the West right now. If in years to come, Texas and New Mexico have a solution for that, for minerals and resources that they're already pulling out of the ground, what great use of these things that at this point there's nothing to do with. Who knows, maybe 10 years from now, people will be saying, well, boy, doesn't he look like a tall glass of produced water? And since we're still in Texas in the Eagleford, I've got some stories about, you guessed it, assets switching hands. So Plains All-American and Hartree Partners LP announced the signing of definitive agreements under which Plains would sell its Pine Prairie and Southern Pines natural gas storage facilities to a Hartree affiliate for $850 million in cash. The sale will generate cash that Plains plans to use to reduce debt and increase investor returns. According to Willie Chang, the chairman and CEO of Plains, the deal is a win-win as Plains exits an attractive position in a reasonable time frame and passes on high-quality and critical infrastructure to another company who might make use of it. The deal includes roughly 70 billion cubic feet of total working gas capacity spread among nine caverns, as well as associated base gas, header pipelines, and compression facilities. So general midstream stuff. And lastly, in one of the most Texas articles I have ever read in my entire life, Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill prohibiting the state from investing in companies that cut ties to the oil and gas industry in protest. Oil and gas companies, which are already under pressure to increase dividends to appease shareholders, must now contend with large organizations ranging from Wall Street banks to Silicon Valley tech behemoths that consider climate change to be a top concern when making investment decisions. The bills are the latest examples of the growing divide between Republican lawmakers and corporations that have taken a public stance on hot-button issues. And this quite literally means that, remember when North Face said, no, we're not going to give you those jackets, they would get boycotted, except it's not as small as just clothing. I mean, even Google has said, no, we are not working to give our AI services to oil and gas. So a strong-arm decision, but I'll be surprised if it stands. But that wraps it up for both of our basins in Texas. Let's move over to the east, talk about ScoopStack in Oklahoma in general, where Devon Energy has set new environmental performance goals that include lowering its carbon intensity, reducing freshwater consumption, and interacting constructively with its value chain. 
The corporation said it will rely on new technology to boost efficiencies across the board, which it claims will be critical to meeting its goal of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for scopes 1 and 2 by 2050. Devon's emission reduction strategy will include expanding its leak detection and repair program, implementing advanced leak detection technologies, electrifying facilities to reduce the use of natural gas and diesel consumed on site, including switching from gas-driven to air-driven pneumatic controllers and reducing the volume of natural gas flared. Seems like they're just hopping in line and moving with the transition. Nothing crazy. No, absolutely. But I also think it's interesting because it kind of sounds like they're going to try and spark up some kind of R&D program to implement these. Not just going to go, you know, what's the standard technology? What can we implement here? Sounds like they're going to try and create their own solutions here. So it'll be interesting to see what they develop and if they kind of share it with the rest of the industry to push towards, you know, these big decarbonizations and, and net zero goals that we've been seeing all over the board. But up next, State Treasurer Randy McDaniel released gross revenues for the month of May 2021, revealing that total collections in May totaled $1.24 billion for the Oklahoma economy. McDaniel said, quote, A key industry in our state is the oil and gas industry, and it's great to see that we've more than doubled the receipts that we received a year ago at this time. A 128% increase is a very substantial binding measurement, and we're looking forward to a prosperous future. End quote. Even unemployment rates have improved from 13% a year ago to 4.3% today. If commodity prices continue to increase, Oklahoma's situation is only projected to get better. Hell yeah, Oklahoma. They were hit probably one of the hardest. They're no Wyoming, of course, but a lot of their economy is based on hydrocarbons and the business around it. So I'm glad to see such an incredible improvement over 2020. Next, just a little bit of feel-good news for you that I wanted to include. There's an Oklahoma company that's saving lives in India. Parts for oxygen compressors are being manufactured by an oil and gas equipment company for shipment to India. According to Dustin Anderson, Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Kimray Incorporated, the company received an urgent order for 100 valves from India. The company is known for making parts for oil and gas units, but they have never made parts for oxygen compressors before. He said, we had people from supply chain getting in their trucks on their own and drive to Kansas to pick up parts from the manufacturer. We had vendors start to ship things at their own cost and drive them to us. We really saw people jump through hoops, said Anderson. When you have an opportunity like this to really step up and meet a need that is bigger than what we normally do and it's impacting lives, then it's huge. It's really fulfilling. I love a story like this because this, to me, this is what it's all about. Not only addressing energy disparity in the world, but look at that. They're helping people with their health. Kind of like you said, it's just that feel-good story of, and it makes you feel good about humanity, you know, just helping your neighbor out when your neighbor's struggling. And the fact that we can tie it into the oil and gas industry, look, some guys that, you know, have some experience in, in compressor manufacturing, yeah, it's not necessarily for oxygen units, but hey, let's give this a shot and let's help our neighbor out. I love it. Next, we're taking it to California, where really all of the news revolves around CalGEM, and not for the reasons they would want. So if you remember, I think it was last month or two months ago, episode of Basin Breakdown, Kevin and I were talking about how banning fracking in California isn't going to make too big of an impact because only about 2% or even less than 2% of California's oil production is associated with fracking. But it appears that <laughs> that was significantly underestimated. According to oil and gas industry groups, the genuine figure is eight times greater, and even environmentalists believe that 2% is far too low. So when you've got both industry and environmentalists agreeing, you know there's something fishy going on. 
Newsom is relying on a doubtful estimate from his own oil regulator, and critics ask how the state would be able to effectively combat fracking if it doesn't know how much is happening. The biggest issue is the estimate understates the magnitude of money and people involved in the hydraulic fracturing business. The state's oil regulator admits that it only keeps track of fracking activities that have started in the last six years, which is only a small percentage of the state's current fracking activity. Officials could have arrived at the figure, which the agency's records indicate as 2.6%, by dividing by the wrong amount according to a review of public documents and industry records, but CalGem has not responded to inquiries about its methods of calculation or whether or not they meant to present that estimate. Uh, to me, this is just a big old whoops I in the can... worst possible way and in probably the worst state where you could have made a mistake like this. Exactly. And this data is very sensitive. If you're an agency presenting data, I mean, people will accept that as fact. Hell, we accepted it as fact. We said, oh, come on, this bill, not going to affect that many people. But if it's eight times more, it's going to affect eight times as much people and maybe even more money. So... We've also got another story on CalGem dragging its feet on new safety rules. California Governor Gavin Newsom asked oil regulators to investigate new health and safety standards to protect residents living near oil and gas drilling sites a year and a half ago. However, these officials missed yet another deadline for issuing the guidelines in June, angering environmentalists who say communities can no longer wait for reform. CalGem hasn't established a new deadline for the rules, which were supposed to be out in December under Newsom's original deadline. Regulators postponed their decision, but stated that they would be released in the spring. Most of the complaints from environmentalists are centered around the fact that there is no setback to separate communities from the oil and gas activity. While CalGem has not commented on the delays, the overseeing California Department of Conservation has revealed that the process is taking longer due to, quote, complex subject matter within and beyond our previous regulatory experience, end quote. I'm sure I'm entirely minimizing their impact and their work weeks and what they do, but Kevin, it sounds like we need to move to California and get some government jobs because the expectations appear to be low and the timelines long. Tell you what, I'll get back to you in a year. <laughs> and our next basin, the Marcellus. And I've got a headline that I swear I didn't make this up. This isn't out of some science fiction but the Supreme Court favors a pipeline. So in a battle with New Jersey over land needed for a natural gas pipeline, the Supreme Court sided with a pipeline firm on Tuesday. The Penny's Pipeline Company won barely 5-4 to four with the help of both liberal and conservative judges. The 116-mile pipeline will extend from Pennsylvania's Luzerne County to New Jersey's Mercer County. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission gave Penn East a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity in 2018, allowing the project to proceed forward, but litigation still ensued. In order to obtain state-controlled property for its project, the business went to court with New Jersey. Penn East maintained that the commission's approval of its project gave it the right to sue New Jersey and employ eminent domain to take state-owned lands to use in the project. The Supreme Court came to the same conclusion. When the FERC provides a certificate of public convenience and necessity, Federal law empowers the certificate's holder, quote, to condemn all necessary rights of way, whether owned by private parties or states, end quote, wrote Chief Justice John Roberts for the majority. While industry celebrates a decision that establishes a strong precedent, environmentalist groups will still push to reverse the decision. I just got to say two things about this. One, no way. And two, about damn time. <laughs> right? But it still seems strange that if the FERC supplies you with a certificate, you can sue a state for its land. I don't know. It seems like a weird imbalance of power, but again, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, man. 
Many communities benefit from oil and gas production, but 2020 will limit just how much kickback will be received. Impact fees generated $146.3 million in 2020, according to Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. It's the lowest figure since the impact charge was enacted about a decade ago. Impact fees brought in $200 million to Pennsylvania towns last year, down from $251 million the year before. The state's independent fiscal office predicted in January that the impact charge would bring in $144.5 million to the state and municipal budgets, down 28% from last year and 42% from the year before. In a news release, Marcella Shale Coalition President David Cahallan said, quote, Pennsylvania's natural gas tax continues to deliver important benefits for the entire Commonwealth. Generated more than $2 billion since 2012, the impact tax is a successful policy for Pennsylvanians, local governments, environmental conservation programs, emergency response efforts, and much more, end quote. As the revenues for these projects and the industry in general continue to dry up, so will these kickback taxes. So I'm wondering how the public's perception will change as we move on with this energy transition if we move on in the way that, say, the Biden administration wants to go with it. But that's about all we have for there. Take it to North Dakota in the Bakken, where we will go over the news of our last basin for the episode. Oasis Petroleum has left the Permian Basin, selling its properties in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, and relocating its activities to the Bakken region of North Dakota. On May 20th, Oasis Petroleum announced that it had entered into multiple agreements to sell its Permian assets for a total of $481 million, including $406 million at closing and $25 million in contingent payments in 2023, 2024, and 2025 if the price of WTI averages $60 per barrel each year. Oasis acquired properties in the Williston Basin in northern North Dakota from Diamondback Energy for around $745 million a month ago, adding 27,000 barrels of oil equivalent output per day and 95,000 acres for its first quarter of 2021. The change, according to Oasis Chief Executive Officer Danny Brown, is meant to boost the company's returns for investors. Our next story looks like North Dakota might be losing its second-place podium spot. What I mean by that is North Dakota has been the country's second-largest oil producer for nine years, but it is in danger of losing that position as New Mexico's oil production surges. According to one report, North Dakota has already dropped to third position. It's a horse race, said Lynn Helms, the natural resource director for North Dakota. Texas continues to be the nation's top producer of crude oil. The Permian Basin, which stretches over parts of New Mexico and Texas, is perhaps the Bakken's biggest rival. The Bakken-producing oil region is closer to large refineries and export terminals than the southern oil-producing zone, and therefore attracts significant drilling and investments in the oil and gas industry, but looks like tides might turn. I'm kind of looking forward to this, you know, horse race, as Lynn Helms put it, because it's just fun. You know, it's states competing to be, you know, the biggest and baddest and best, biggest producer in the United States. I just think it's kind of a way of looking at, you know, things are really turning around. You know, production's starting to come back. So um, who you got, Tavis? Who's going to come in second end of 2021? Oh, I, I don't even want to make a prediction because I think we're in dangerous territory of repeating the mistakes of the past and being, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a dick measuring contest between states where we end up producing way too much oil. What Tavis is really saying is he's scared to be wrong. <laughs> The oil industry in North Dakota no longer has to carry all of its radioactive waste out of the state thanks to the opening of a disposal facility in McKenzie County, and more sites may be on the way. 
Various firms have sought for years to get authority to dispose of radioactive oil field waste in North Dakota, but have been unsuccessful. As a result, trucks transport approximately 100,000 tons of waste to landfills in other states each and every year. The majority of it is sent to a processing facility in Glendive, Montana, with smaller portions going to Idaho, Colorado, and Oregon. In April, KT Enterprises began burying the waste at a site near Johnson's Corner, east of Watford City, hundreds of feet underground. A slurry well is what KT Enterprises is operating. The waste is mixed with salt water, another undesired byproduct of oil and gas production, and in injected into the Menelusda and Amsden rock formations at a depth of 7,500 feet. The oil industry in other states, such as Louisiana and Alaska, use the same disposal procedure. But that closes out all of our stories for this month's episode of Basin Breakdown. If you want to go listen back to what we've been referencing before, hey, you can go to our website and just pretty much search Basin Breakdown. It'll turn up over a year's worth of backlogged episodes, or you can even just listen to the segments from your favorite basin. They should all be presented in the same order. While you're there, you can find plenty of other content, written periodicals, other podcast series, definitely enough to keep you busy and learning for quite some time. But last things last, to answer your question, I'm putting 20 bucks on New Mexico by 2022. You heard it here. Don't let us forget. This is a running bet now. I'm not afraid to be wrong, but I'm more afraid to lose money. So thanks for coming to the podcast. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. We'll see you next month.